Welcome back to the second Paddock Pass podcast. This time it's the follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. And I'm joined by two of my favorite broadcasting buddies, Neil Morrison, who's had an exhausting day in Austria. He'll, he'll give us an update in a moment. And also David Emmett. Dave, we're going to dodge women's fashion uh, and pronunciation for this particular podcast. Um, thanks for the Osterreich um, lessons because um, we're still in Austria, so it's very re- relevant on this particular show. But um, we're just going to be dissecting some of the action from um, Moto2 and Moto3 last weekend. Of course, the next Grand Prix, um, the Grand Prix of Osterreich, uh, sponsored by Bitsy. Bitchy. How, how are we saying that one, Dave? I have no idea, Bitchy, but basically it's just a way of uh, uh, destroying the planet for no reasonable reason. Well, let's not let's not get bitchy about it. Uh, Neil, first of all, um, just give us a quick summary because you've been somewhere pretty special today on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to be invited along to KTM's um, factory in Matekofen, uh, about three, two and a half hours drive from um, Spielberg. Um, so, yeah, they put on a real a real show for us. We uh, were taken for lunch, then we went to uh, the workshops, which was pretty impressive just to see how they juggle so many disciplines um, and it's all basically all the kind of factory bikes from all the different disciplines are worked on under one roof um, that we got to see um, the WP section of uh, the operation and got to speak to some uh, chassis designers just fascinating stuff and then we went to the real uh, cherry on the top which was to the uh, dynos to watch um, some MotoGP machines being put through uh, their paces on the dyno um, and just watching that and how everything is done um, well let's just say uh, it gives you an insight into how they've uh, become so successful in such a short space of time uh, and I'm really really jealous I would have to say Neil knowing you the lunch was probably one of the highlights of the day as well um, what kind of um you know, what number of serving are you on of Apple Strudel this week? Uh, Apple Strudel, a mild two, but Wiener Schnitzel, uh, pretty, pretty serious. It's verging on every day, a schnitzel a day. Uh, you, so you're aiming for double figures, basically? Uh, yeah, by the end of the trip, yeah. That is, uh, that's one of the aims, definitely. Um, yeah, never mind by doing good work or writing something that makes me proud. It's getting the schnitzels into double figures. Well, let's um let's get like a deep fried on our Moto Two first. Um, you know, Marco Bezzecchi, uh took his first victory of the season. Um, you know, just ahead of second place. Uh, surprisingly, it wasn't a Red Bull KTM AO machine. I think that may be one of the very few Grand Prix we've had in the ten rounds of the season so far, where one of the orange bikes hasn't been in the top three. But uh, yeah, uh, it was um, you know a good victory by the Italian. Um, and to be honest, Neil, I mean you were commentating from the first three practice sessions, and Bezecchi really, you know, he set the pace from the outset, didn't he? I mean, it was kind of obvious from early on on Friday that uh, he was going to be pretty much the man to beat. It was um, clear that he was going to be to be there. Um, I mean, we haven't really seen Bezecchi dominating sessions or even looking like the strongest guy. And I was trying to recall. Um, any session this year and it's, it's kind of tough to recall one so yeah from for him to, to come here um, to one of his his better tracks um, took his first Moto2 race win um, at the Rebel Ring last year in the Styrian Grand Prix um, it was clear that this was maybe a chance for him to really um, kick on um, because he's been banging on the door he hasn't had a bad season by any stretch of the imagination um, he just hasn't been spectacular um, and it's it's been tough for him to really live with the, the Iowa boys but um, I think he 
um, just was quite intelligent. We've seen him start well in a few races this year, drop away and not really recover. And we saw him drop away after leading initially, but then he was able to start setting fastest laps, um, hold Remy Gardner in. And um, yeah, maybe it was a little fortunate that Remy made a mistake and Ayagura got a, a long lap penalty. Um, but still, it was a, a pretty good performance from uh, from Bezeki. And um, yeah, I think we can maybe say that he's back in the title fight from here. How much do we think the conditions played a uh, played a role? Because, um, I mean, we'll talk about Moto3 later. Moto3 was basically, you know, a, a wet race on a drying line. This was a dry race with a bunch of damp patches. But it was the kind of race where you really had to concentrate and be careful uh, and could quite easily make a mistake. Um, that was one of the things which, you know, impressed me most about Bezeki, the fact that he didn't, he never really put a foot wrong all race, uh, uh, all race long. But, I mean, do, do, do we think that the... The fact that the conditions were not perfect, not ideal. Um, do you think? Do we think they made they made a difference? I think so. Yeah, I think um, we saw quite a few crashes in the the first lap, the first two laps. We saw Ralph Fernandez make an uncharacteristic early mistake at turn nine, ran off track. Um, I think just because he got onto one of the damp patches. Um, and uh, yeah, you would have to say, looking at someone like uh, Augusto Fernandez, who eventually finished second, or sorry, third, he had the pace, I think, to run with the leaders with that leading group, maybe even challenge for maybe victory. Um, Augusto was one of the fastest guys in free practice as well. Um, yet he just found the conditions quite difficult through laps one and two and three. So um yeah, I think uh, I think you're you're right there, Dave. Um, it wasn't like a really really fast pace from the very first lap, like we've seen in some Moto Two races this year, um, and that was obviously because the the track was far from dry. I mean, there was a dry line; everyone was on slicks, but they had to take great amount of care. And we know that the Red Bull Ring is quite an easy track when you're in a big group to run slightly offline in one of the heavy braking areas, just because it's so difficult to be precise when you're coming down from such a such a high speed. Um, we saw Aaron Connett take second place, uh, you know, on the Bosco Scuro chassis machine, you know, one of the only variations of equipment inside Moto2. Um, again, Neil, another question directed at you. I mean, do you think Connett's, I mean, is he one of the guys on the fast track? He's uh, obviously had speed, uh, Grand Prix winning potential in Moto3. Um, he seems to have, you know, kind of partially discovered his, the knack for Moto2. I mean, if there is going to be a rider in the next year or two that pops out of Moto2 into the Premier class, it's going to be him, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. I would I would say there's a few guys ahead of him. I mean, like Bezeki, you would probably say would be in MotoGP before Kinect. Uh, I think Aigura on recent performances will probably be there before Kinect as well. Um, and then there's maybe like one or two names that, um, that have yet to be confirmed. Um, Augusto Fernandez, perhaps. Yeah, I'm... I mean, talking for 2022, I agree. I mean, he's he's not in the top group. I think, you know, he still needs another year. Um, you know, maybe even switching to the Calix chassis, you know, might bring out uh, even more competitiveness in him. But, um, you know, like Jorge Martin, he just seems to be one of those riders that, you know, that the natural talent is immediately obvious. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's that's definitely true. That's always been the case, I think, with Kinect since he came into the into the paddock. Um He's been so hot and cold this year. It, it's quite baffling. Um, when he's good, he's finishing second. When he's bad, he's crashing or he's finishing quite low down. Um, he feels that it's entirely the fault of the Boscos Girl chassis. Um, and that's why he's leaving that team at the end of this year and going to Cedar Ponce's Calix shod uh, team. Um, but 
I would say that the caveat there is look at Fabio De Gian, De Gian Antonio. He was making very similar noises right the way through last year. Darren Kinnett, oh, you know, this this bike is good, but when it's good, it's good. But when it's bad, we're nowhere. And I mean, frankly, Fabio De Gian Antonio, we haven't seen any sort of upturn in his consistency. So I don't think jumping on the Calyx is a, a surefire means of, uh, or a surefire way to immediately be up at the front uh, continuously. Now, you mentioned Augusto Fernandez there. Uh, Dave, I mean, Augusto finishing third um, on the podium, that was his second appearance in the top three this season. Um, I get the impression from him that he's a very kind of articulate young man, seems very intelligent. I mean, he's in the right team, the right potential. I mean, we seem to be asking this question of several names in Moto2, but would it be too soon for this rider to jump into MotoGP if he's offered a seat, say, at, you know, Petronas Yamaha? I mean, what's your feeling about it? I think he might be offered the seat just because of the situation. I mean, the situation that, you know, all of a sudden Yamaha are having to find two riders, which they weren't expecting to have to do at the start of the season. Um, uh, and Fernandez sort of fits the bill. He's young, he's talented, um, uh, he has potential. Uh, that That's what they want to do at that team. Uh, that's also why there's talk that Bezeki is going to be um, uh, in one of those seats as well. Um, I think... Uh, I suppose Yamaha are not in a great deal of uh, rush, and Petronas aren't in a great deal of uh, of a hurry to actually sign someone. They, they do have quite a lot of time to, um, uh, to to find someone. I think that the I think Fernandez is definitely one of the riders who will be in the frame there. Um, I, I think he will have to, you know, he'll need a couple, a few more strong performances a few more um podiums before the you know to, to really cement his uh, his right to go up but um if it in any other in any other year you know if there was only one or two places open uh, then i'm not sure that he will have done enough but uh, you know they've like i say patronus needs some, some people they need a bum on that seat and um uh, fernandez's bum is looking sort of pretty reasonable right now suits you sir <laughs> uh, I would, I would say that um, you know, if of the guys that aren't in the championship fight, so maybe you look at the two IO guys, Bezeki, even Sam Lowe's. If you look beyond them and look at the rest of the championship and think who's going to step up in the second half of this year and maybe win races and maybe take a couple of podiums, you have to say Augusto's the man because he does seem to have found that finally found that. Uh, that magic that was just missing last year, that, that, that sort of natural comfort on the bike that um, he, he lacked. And he has been banging on the door before his podium at Assen. He had been banging on the door for several races, but a few early mistakes and a bit of lack of composure perhaps in certain instances. But I think we're starting to see the real Augusto come back. And that, that's great because, you know, in 2019, he was definitely one of the more exciting prospects in Moto2. Um, just before we talk about the, you know, the Tech 3 KTM factory racing riders for next year um, and their sort of differing fortunes um, in Austria, you know, just a word about some of the riders maybe we're expected a little bit more of. I mean, I'm thinking Chere Vierge, you know, an experienced campaigner in Moto2, the likes of Joe Roberts, um, you know, and you mentioned Ayogura there, Neil. I mean, he's obviously a, a rookie to the demands of the class, but obviously showing some good potential. Um, you know, are we kind of surprised that, you know, IU have had such domination up until this point? Should there be more guys popping there, you know, that, or throwing their hat into the ring for more kind of trophies? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, but I, I just think that the IO team is, is, is so good and the, the, the kind of rider lineup there is, is just 
has been the perfect mix up until now that they've kind of carried each other on to different heights. Um, the, the, the level of Moto2 has maybe been higher this year than it was even last year. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely a couple of names that I thought would be fighting for maybe race wins or podiums at the very least. Um, yeah, there's definitely a few names that have, have disappointed, I think. It's, it's fair to say. Javi Vierge, Marcel Schroeder. These are guys that you would expect to be fighting for the podium on a more regular basis. Um, Dejan Antonio, I think, has been a massive disappointment since his MotoGP move has been confirmed. Um, we haven't seen anything of him. Jorge Navarro, I mean, he's just disappeared completely. Yeah, there is... Um, but, you know, this is a... It's a brutal class, and if you, you find yourself in a bit of a rut, it can be really, really difficult to pull yourself out. I think the the biggest advantage with the which the Aya boys have had is just their consistency because they've just been there every single race. I mean, even you know this was a bad weekend for the uh, for the IMO two team, uh, and yet Remy Gardner finishes fourth and Raúl Fernández finishes seventh. Um, that's exactly the kind of consistency. I mean, we talked about this on the MotoGP show. That's the way that you uh, that you win a championship. You win a championship by just being so incredibly consistent um, all of the time by by maximising your bad days. You know, by making sure you get there. And I think Remy Gardner. I mean, Remy Gardner really made. Um, quite a bad mistake uh, in uh, in in running wide, running off uh, off track, and losing a lot of uh, losing a lot of ground. Um, and you sort of you also sort of felt that there was a certain amount of pressure at play there as uh, uh, as well. Uh, it, it really felt like um, also for Raúl Fernández. Obviously, there was the whole sort of psychodrama around that about you know Willie Wernty and. Um, uh, KTM all of a sudden issuing a press release in FP4 and uh, it, it just there, there was the feeling that he was being pressured into uh, racing in MotoGP next year which he doesn't necessarily want to do and he doesn't necessarily want to do in the Tech 3 team um, so yeah you really felt like there was some there was some pressure there yeah it did seem that uh, this was maybe the toughest weekend of, of Fernandez's time in Moto2. You know, seventh place is no disaster. It's nothing to be too ashamed about. But you do feel that the whole commotion about his future, um, I mean, it was quite interesting to hear Raul interviewed by zone on Saturday, a Spanish uh, broadcaster, and he was asked about the announcement. And, um, I mean, he was asked basically, will you be next year where you want to be? And he said, no straight up and uh, I mean initially I, I have to say that I thought he meant he was disappointed because he wanted to stay in Moto 2 but then I heard some stories um, through the weekend that uh, you know one or two of his people might have still been exploring the Yamaha option and Yamaha certainly weren't giving up on Fernandez, even though he may have well have signed a contract um, with KTM to step up to MotoGP next year um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's quite a strange one. Um, so, yeah, you, you can't help but feel that that was some kind of distraction, even if it was just minor. I mean, um, it, was, it was something that may well have affected him because it was, a, yeah, a whole drama, really, um, when it seemed that his future was sealed and, and, and kind of, it was absolutely certain that he was moving up with KTM. This kind of, the Yamaha sort of stories wouldn't just go away. And clearly, that if Raul uh, was not interested at all in Yamaha, like the, that story wouldn't have been there, you know? I, I kind of feel that maybe there was some sort of 
last minute change of opinion or maybe he was just exploring okay if i went to yama what would it be like i don't know but um yeah that that uh, that certainly impacted his uh, his weekend you feel what about um remy gardner then neil because uh you know he he made a mistake he finished fourth he could have been going for another victory but he was able to extend his championship lead over ralph fernandez after you know his teammates first result uh, the gap now at 35 points. Uh, Bezeki closing up a little bit with 44. So like you said, I mean, he's not out of the championship chase yet, even though that's still quite a distance to close down when the Australian has been so consistent. Um, I just wondered, you know, there was some conjecture, some kind of half-hearted jokes that, you know, the presence of Wayne in the pit box and that little bit of paternal kind of pressure might have been a factor. Very, very unlikely, uh, but it's, it's kind of a coincidence. But then, you know, um, if you're a gardener right now, are you a little bit kind of anxious? Are you thinking, right, Red Bull Ring, I need to, you know, reassert my control over this thing in terms of results? I mean, I don't think so. Um, I caught up with Remy after the race and he certainly wasn't given that impression. Um, he's just got really mature head and shoulders this year. Um, yes, he probably had right to be a bit peeved that um, he missed out on the podium at you know KTM's home race and um, there was the potential there to win the race absolutely no doubt um, but um, he was just looking at the bigger picture which was fourth place is a good result and I extended my championship lead and there were slightly mitigating circumstances in that Remy's the heaviest rider on the Moto2 grid he's 11 kilos heavier than Marco Bezzecchi and he was saying just in that first sector alone Bezzecchi was on the exit of turn one really just making massive inroads into him um, and indeed if you look at some of the, the partial uh, the sector times from free practice I mean Gardner was 17th in FP3 for example in, in the first sector uh, given up around two tenths of a second to Bezzecchi yet he was either first or second in sectors two, three and four so this is a good, really good track for him, but his weight was maybe punishing him ever so slightly in that first sector. So I think all things considered, it was still a decent weekend. Not his best weekend of the year, obviously, but um, you know, there's still plenty of reason to be positive coming into um, the, uh, the Grand Prix of Österreich, uh, as Dave says. Very good. Yeah, I just cast a very quick glance over the um, uh, over the timesheets and uh, d during the race, and you can see that uh, sort of you know Bezeki is doing a fair number of nineteen point zeros through that first sector, where Gardner is doing nineteen point two, nineteen point three. So yeah, it, you know that's a quarter of a second he's losing in that first sector almost every lap, which is uh, a lot to make up somewhere else. Um, let's just talk about, you know, maybe a slightly brighter or more happier performance for the Apple KTMIO team. And that was in Moto3, Dave. Um, you know, uh, Pedro Acosta's victory in Qatar, where he started from pit lane, was nothing short of staggering. But for me, this was one of his finest performances of the season. Um, you know, a, a flat-out duel with Sergio Garcia, not only a very capable racer in his own right, but also, you know, his nearest rival for the championship. And, you know, not only did he emerge victorious, but it was in difficult conditions and you know for once we didn't have a crazy 12 to 15 rider bevy uh, of action going for podium positions on the on the last lap i don't know about you but i thought i actually found it quite refreshing yeah i i really enjoyed this race be precisely because it was um because the conditions were more difficult you couldn't just sort of stick in the just get into the slipstream get onto the tail of someone and follow them about you actually had to think for yourself you had to ride for yourself you couldn't afford to get off the line uh, uh to make 
stupid moves in an attempt to get a slipstream. Um, so what you saw was basically the best riders uh, winning. You know, the, the, the best riders coming to the fore. Um, and it was it was a it was just a very very it was a fascinating race. Also seeing the two of them both, I thought both Acosta and Garcia rode really really well. Uh, in the end, it was um, you know Garcia makes a mistake and uh, and crashes out. But even then, they have so much advantage that Garcia still manages to you know he, he crashes, runs off track, crashes, gets back on, rides through the gravel, and still uh, finishes second. We can see, well, we could see how difficult it was for the Moto three guys because you know somebody like Dennis Onchu was the perfect example of uh, indecision um, and leaving a you know uh, a verdict late on race tires too late in fact i mean squandering his very first pole position in the class and also for the tech three team and for turkey you know ended up starting uh, right from the back of the pack and actually didn't even break into the points um you know you could argue also neil that the patronus guys i mean darren binder was the first honda on one of the fastest tracks on the calendar which was maybe a little surprising because you know you had ktm gas gas Husqvarna filling the podium essentially the same kind of machinery uh, darren binder making up to seventh i think it was so uh you know there was a gamble with the tires but then also perhaps the honda riders were a little you know going against the grain in terms of competitiveness yeah yeah i mean um Certainly in McPhee's case, it was uh, maybe a gamble worth taking because he's out of the championship fight. Not maybe so much for Darren Binder. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was really difficult to say on the uh, on the warm-up lap, on the siding lap, whether wet tyres would be the right decision or whether it would be uh, time for slicks. It's just so difficult to know how quickly the track dries out. Um, and in the end, obviously, the, the wet tyres were, uh, were the correct choice um, because um, Garcia and Acosta set their fastest times on laps uh, the lap 21 of 23 um and yes binder got faster but not uh, um not to the extent that he could trouble the podium guys you know i think he finished sixth in the end so it was a good ride from him but the other guys were way back you know um that they, they, they took the slicks i mean andrew had a nightmare he was completely anonymous um but um yeah it was uh, it was an interesting race I, I echo what dave said it was just i think the two standout riders in moto 3 this season going head to head right until the penultimate corner um and once again acosta just makes something look so easy all race long he looked totally in control it was iron garcia up i never really had a doubt about acosta winning that and i think garcia is a, is a really fine young rider great talent but watching that race i was like there's only one outcome of this uh, one of the things about that race is it shows just just how hard those Dunlop wets are because, you know, they did withstand that entire race. Um, but the other thing that I was, which I found interesting, was like that last lap. It, it, I mean, I thought there was going to be a whole bunch of penalties uh, at the end of that. There was lots sort of, um, there was a fair amount of IG bargy. There was um, sort of Acosta and Garcia almost coming together and I'm not, Still not entirely sure whether someone was at fault or whether it was just a race incident. There was a certain amount of uh, sort of exceeding track limits. But because it was just the two of them, uh, it made it a lot less controversial, if you like. You know, the, 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 this was a proper last lap battle, the, the, the way that you expect it to be in a motorcycle race. Yeah, and there was no hard... I went to the press conference afterwards and there was no hard feelings. Um, you know, Garcia took it well. Um, Acosta said that yeah it was tough but everything was legal and then he looked over at Garcia and gave him a little wink and well yeah it was uh, 
there was no sort of aggro there. So, um, yeah, I think there was one or two moments which he thought could be penalised. I think um, Acosta in the exit of turn one, for example, he just managed to keep it within the limits. Um, and then other the, the moves up at turn three and then at turn nine, they were tough, but they were, they were fair in my opinion. If we look at the championship standings, then Acosta's, what, 53 points ahead. Um, what do we think, guys? It's going to take a serious kind of choke or meltdown for him to really throw that away, isn't it? Even though Garcia's there and he's hounding him, um, you know, that's a gap of more than two Grand Prix. Uh, we've had 10 rounds. So you, you, realistically, with the, a lot of speculation over the calendar coming up, we're looking at maybe seven or eight races left. I mean, uh, Acosta, in theory, could wrap this up before we, we go to Valencia and, and end up finishing the season there or um, Portimao or whatever. You know, it depends on how things get rearranged. But uh, uh, what do you reckon now? Yeah, I think so. I'd, um, I mean, I think that the, the fact that the calendar could see further changes before the season is out, I think that could work in the cost favour because going to places like Sepang, Thailand, Phillip Island, these are places that he's never been to. Whereas um, we're going to Portimao again, that's been added after I think Thailand was cancelled. Um, he obviously knows Portimao. Um, if another, if say we don't go to Sepang, you have to imagine that we'll maybe go to either Hareth or Mizano for a replacement race Acosta knows those tracks so yeah I think um, I think the way COVID-19 is playing with the calendar and affecting the calendar I think it's it's, it's working in his advantage and um, you know there are tracks coming up that he knows well quite a few tracks actually that he knows well um, I just can't see him um, letting this slip because there's been no sign of nerves whatsoever uh, just yet so um, I don't foresee that changing I mean, there have been sort of some sticky moments for him. Le Mans, of course, and that crash. And then uh, Mugello and Catalonia, he wasn't, you know, really in podium contention. So it's not been super plain sailing so far for him. I think, you know, he has had some adversity to deal with. And of course, there's the pressure um, around her rest time, you know, the the words and the comments of people like Mark Marquez, um, people commenting that Acosta was maybe the heir apparent to Marquez. So he, there's been a kind of whirlwind of, education um both on the track and off it this season um you know people would expect him to jump into moto 2 uh if he wins the championship but my big question is uh ktm are now kind of reaching the point where they have a little bit of a bottleneck of talent so you know what do you do with a rider like acosta do you ask him maybe to stay in moto 3 and try and defend the championship a year i mean do you try and slow his progress so that he's not you know he, what's to stop him jumping into moto 2 next year and doing a fernandez um, then he's already eyeing MotoGP and then you'll have people like Yamaha or maybe Aprilia sniffing around him and trying to offer him a long-term contract. I mean, arguably, you could say Acosta has shown more potential than Fernandez has and he could be one of KTM's most brightest talents yet. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he's going to go up to Moto2 next year and, well, he'll be there for two years and a lot can change in two years. I know Brad Binder's obviously signed up to a long-term contract, but who knows what Miguel Oliveira will be doing then? Who knows what Remy Gordon will be doing then? Um, I still think um, I still think uh, it's not a situation to necessarily worry about if you're Acosta or KTM at the moment because, well, MotoGP is still a couple of seasons away. Um, yeah, and just on, on the thing about him not being always at it I mean I know he's had a couple of races where he's not finished on the podium he's maybe been 6th or 7th or 8th but I think in the dry take away that Le Mans race the furthest he's been from the race win all season is 1.3 seconds at Aston um, so that's not really that far in, in dry contests you know so basically every dry race we've had 
he's been in the mix. Um, and okay, there are a few races hasn't played out um, maybe as he would have liked them, obviously, but he's always been there in that group. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's his consistency. There are absolutely no signs that he's going to, uh, you know, sort of stumble anywhere. He he hasn't been all of a sudden completely lost. Yeah, okay. I mean, Lamar was a was a bit of an Alfan uh, anomaly, uh, but you know, elsewhere he turns up. Uh, he's fast in practice. Uh, he does the, the laps on his own. Um, he his race craft has just been outstanding. Uh, extremely mature. Uh, so yeah, I don't see. I I think he's got too much of an advantage. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he wraps up the title around Aragon time. Um, so yeah, it, I can't see anyone getting in his way. I do think that uh, that uh, Sergio Garcia is doing an absolutely phenomenal job in the in the second half of the champion uh, of the championship. Really, really, he's really coming on strong. Um, I think he's going to. Um, uh, yeah, I've just been very, been extremely impressed with him. So we'll, we shall have to see. But I don't think he, um, I really think that uh, Acosta would have to crash and break something and miss a couple of races for, for Acosta to be back in with a chance of actually winning. He would have to get back to within sort of, you know, five or 10 points. Um, last thing around Moto3, we kind of touched on it this week in the Padapass podcast, you know, just, well, looking at the, the MotoGP race, and we talked about the Patronus uh, Yamaha saddles that are still unconfirmed. Um, at the weekend at Red Bull Ring, Darren Binder's name was mentioned. Um, what, what do we think about, you know, this this guy, this, you know, this South African doing a Jack Miller and jumping straight out of Moto3 potentially into the bigger class? Um, I mean, I, I gather it would be a move that wouldn't be advisable, but maybe he has the kind of, not only the talent, but the character to carry something like that off. Uh, what are your thoughts, Dave? Uh, if, um, well, if anyone does do it, uh, then they'll have a much easier job than Jack Miller because Jack Miller jumped onto a uh, Honda CRT machine, basically, or an open-class Honda. Um, obviously, that took a lot of pressure off, but it also meant that you know he was on a, he was on a slow bike, which wasn't uh, particularly fantastic. Whereas, uh, if there is a bike that you could put a rookie on and they would get up to speed quickly, it would be the Yamaha. The Yamaha is the easiest to ride. Um, uh, Neil and I were talking this just before the podcast that um, uh, in, the, the bike is extremely rideable. It's logical. It makes sense as a rider. You don't have to do anything uh, that, that goes against your natural instincts as a rider. So if uh, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a massive gamble. Um, I'm not sure. Darren Binder has necessarily done enough to uh, to deserve it, um, but I think it's more of a sign of a lack of alternatives. Uh, you know, we have been scratching around. I've heard all sorts of names uh, connected with that uh, with that ride. Um, keeping it within Patronus would also be uh, you know nice and easy, also because you could quite possibly just push him back to. Uh, pushing back to Moto Two if needed, to, if if it really wasn't working out. Um, but yeah, it's it would be it would at least be fairly easy. You know, you wouldn't change very much. You're staying within the same team, and you're on the easiest bike to 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 learn to ride to to, to race MotoGP on. I think um, Simon Crawford was at the uh, the tour. In Matic often today earlier when we were having lunch, Simon was telling us that uh, 
obviously he lives in Andorra and both the Binder brothers have moved to Andorra recently. And I think over the summer break he had had a barbecue, surprise, surprise, which isn't like Simon, uh, uh, which uh, Darren Binder attended. And Simon was just saying that he was surprised at the kind of intelligence and uh, empathy and maturity and observing uh, skills that Darren Binder possesses. Um, I think maybe he plays up to the gallery with his dive bomb nickname and um, definitely comes across as a bit of a wild child. And he, you know, he, he has, I think, um, uh, sort of worked on that in the last year and a half. Um, but, you know, Simon is of the opinion that, that Darren will definitely go very far. Um, whether he deserves a straight promotion to MotoGP, I think is another matter though. Um, and one concern, a slight concern I maybe have about Darren is we don't really see him doing a lot of riding by himself in Moto3. Whenever you see him uh, in races, we've never seen Darren Binder escape at the front of a race. Although you can maybe say Barcelona last year when he won the race was was the exception and he, he did that really, really well. But I struggle to think of other races that he's been at the front of for very long. And you think of maybe one or two occasions where he's had to start from pit lane, um, like Saxon Ring or um, Portimao, and it just didn't go well. You know, it just um, he wasn't able to kind of make any kind of impression um, on the groups ahead, like we saw the guys doing in, in Qatar. And obviously, the circumstances were different, and those races, those individual races, were faster than what we saw in Qatar when Acosta caught the leaders and won the race, but. Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, the very best Moto3 riders, you always see them working alone and riding alone. Maybe you don't see that so often with Darren Binder. And when you step up to Moto2, you cannot be just reliant on people ahead of you. Um, so I think that would be... You can't dive bomb. Yeah, exactly. So that would be one thing I think to consider. But I think he's a really talented guy and uh, he's... he's He's cool. He's he's got a great personality. Um, he's fast. I mean, he's really fast. He's great to watch. He's really exciting. He's got a lot of things going for him. But um, yeah, one or two little question marks I still have about um, about Darren. But you know, he's he's still young and plenty of time to work on that. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing obviously I talked to Peter Bomb a lot, and also this was something he actually said uh, uh, during the uh, podcast that we put up for Patreon supporters. Um, but like. Moto3, the only thing that counts is doing laps on your own. You have to do laps on your own. Also, when you can move up to Moto2, you have to do laps on your own because um, you learn the bike, you understand the bike, but also by doing laps on your own, uh, you help your crew chief to show, you know, where the bike is, what the bike is doing, you know, where the bike is losing out and all the rest of it. So you actually help the crew chief and all of your crew to improve the bike as well. And I think that's really important. And it really is the the, the difference between uh, the talented riders, the riders who who understand that and who are going to make the uh, make the jump up. They're the ones who do do the laps on their own and they're the it's easy to be sucked into chasing a, cha a, a fast time just by getting a, uh, uh, just by looking for a toe because you can, you know, get four, five tenths uh, from a toe, but you don't learn as much and you need to learn. Uh, just to interject there, we've actually got, um, you know, former Grand Prix rider and BT Sports uh, commentator, presenter, uh, general expert and good egg, uh, Michael Laverty, uh, lending his comments on Moto2 from the weekend. The Moto3 race definitely had a different look to it this weekend. Obviously, the weather played a part, but it wasn't about the slipstream. It was more about racecraft. And actually, 
a lot of the decisions made on the grid were there were some brave ones. The Petronas boys, both Darren and and Binder and John McPhee, opted to go for those slick tires, as did Denny Zonchu from pole position, but done so a little bit too late, and then obviously had to pull get pulled off the grid and uh, start his race from pit lane. But he never quite had the speed on that dry on track. Unfortunately for the Petronas boys, it didn't dry enough and. We never really reached that crossover point. We've seen races around the Red Bull Ring of just a few years ago where it dried quite fast, but this year the sun didn't break through and the, there wasn't enough breeze. And actually the, the actual temperature on the ground on the day, it wasn't that hot. So it was a brave decision. Uh, it didn't quite work out, but Darren rode well to get through to 6th. McPhee got through to 13th. I spoke to John after the race and he said actually the slick tyres on the wet parts of the track weren't actually too bad. He said they were gripping quite well. So there wasn't a lot of stand on water. You could see some spray down the straights, but actually the grip was there. You just had to be quite precise. His um, kind of lack of pace was he got hit on the first lap and lost his rear brake. And he said actually the setting was probably a little bit too much for the dry, so didn't change the suspension and the gear to allow him to, to roll less corner speed and still have the punch off the turn. So it's interesting those changes that actually counted more on the grid than actually putting the correct tyres in on the day but looking at that two-man battle for the victory those wet tyres they held up so well on that dry track because the the dry line was appearing quite early but both um both Acosta and Garcia had so much grip at the end the tyres obviously hadn't chewed up they didn't go too squirmy on the braking zone so they were setting their personal best laps on the last few laps but the the last lap fight Acosta an aggressive move downhill into turn nine it just put Sergio a little bit offline, obviously pushing that tyre to the maximum when they're just past their best. And unfortunately for him, his front tyre folded, as did Acosta's actually, but he was just a little bit tighter in the corner and his folded later as he was kind of picking the throttle up. So he saved it, but run off track. And luckily, Sergio was able to pick the bike up and they had enough of a gap over Fanati that he could still hold that second place. So he did deserve it. He rode really well and I was happy to see him pick it up off the ground and still get those 20 points. So that championship fight... Far from over, Acosta's got a nice cushion there, but it does look like Sergio's going to run him all the way. Uh, the Moto2 actually was an interesting one. For me, the standout performer was Ayagura. I thought he was really strong in qualifying, looked so good in the bike. The early laps of the race couldn't generate the heat in the tyres or get the tyres to work how he wanted. Slipped back into the clutches, but actually then you could see from about lap five, lap six, it started to come to him and he was going forward. And actually for me, he was the, the best guy on track on the day, I think, Without that long lap penalty, I think he could have challenged for the win. He was he was definitely keeping Marco Bezzecchi on his toes. But um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what I can do next weekend on a full dry track. It looks like it's going to be a, a dry weekend, although the forecast can change in Austria pretty rapidly. So I'm um, impressed to see Bezzecchi actually come back after the summer break and rectify those sort of grip issues that were hampering him in the later stages of the races in the first part of the season but he was strong right from the outset and it, throughout free practice he always looked fast apart from that one slip off in free practice three which was actually quite weird uh, tucking the front on acceleration just off the back of a wheelie but um yeah that was the only kind of uh, difficult point of the weekend for Bezeki he controlled it nice solid win and Aaron Cannett putting the Boscoscuro chassis back on the podium again he rode hard for it and again Augusto Fernandez two podiums on the bounce so he keeps that form running from Assen it was a difficult start to the season but at the moment the momentum's kind of in Augusto's favour of that Mark VDS squad Sam Lowe's uh, better this weekend actually for a difficult track for him he never really gels with the Red Bull ring it does require a slightly more 
possibly aerodynamic rider or something that just cost Sam a little bit of time and he was unlucky actually in the last lap going for that overtake and run off line and unfortunately rather than gain him one spot he lost four or five was it in the last lap so yeah he slipped down the order and only finished 14th yeah I think he was going for that eighth place so a big old points loss for Sam but um yeah he seemed positive throughout the weekend on a difficult track he was he was finding some answers but on the one line nature of that dry and track it did seem to hurt him on race day but I think it was um, a yeah, good, interested Moto2 race this weekend without the, the kind of dominant performance from the, the Red Bull KTM boys that we'd seen in the first half of the season. Well, I know uh, Neil's going to be doing laps by himself of the catering in the Red Bull Ring Media Centre this weekend. Um, I'm not envious at all. Uh, Dave and I will just have to saddle up with Red Bull um, and get ready to go again. I have to say, I'm really not a fan of back-to-back MotoGP weekends. But uh, yeah, uh, Neil, you're going to have a bit of deja vu when you get back to uh, Spielberg, um, you know, I guess from tomorrow. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about winners. I mean, especially in Moto3, it seems a very kind of pointless exercise. And as we learned from last weekend, even trying to predict the weather forecast is, uh, you know, well, largely irrelevant as well. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to sign off here from the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be coming back to you next week. Uh, again, just to look at what happened in the uh, the classes outside of MotoGP and to bring some more opinions and insight on any gossip that we find. So, Neil, best of luck this weekend. Uh, Dave, I will see you via the screen as usual. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. I always look forward to the clap. As the actress said to the bishop, check, check, motherfucker.